Let me start with a story this morning based on a true story. He heard a crash and immediately he heard the distinct sound of his six-year-old daughter crying. Without hesitation, he rushed out of the house to see her body crumpled under her new bike. Ah, poor thing, he initially thought. As he walked over to help her, he realized that her cries were warranted in ways that he hadn't imagined. She held her leg and cried out in pain, Daddy, it hurt so bad. After seeing that she couldn't walk on it, he carried her into the house and decided his Saturday was probably going to be spent in the ER as his little girl's shin showed definite signs of issues. So he whisked her away to the hospital, fully expecting the worst. A broken leg, a cast, some crutches. And he was right about part of that. It was a broken leg, and she did get a cast and some crutches, but that wasn't the worst of it. The doctor came in and asked him to sit down. Sir, your daughter's x-rays have given us some cause for concern, he said. There are abnormalities in how her bones are growing. We think it may be wise to run further tests, see if we can make sure that there's nothing to worry about. Like what? he asked the doctor. Well, let's just see, said the grim-looking physician. After some blood work and other testing, the worst finally came to light. His little girl didn't just have a broken leg. She also had leukemia. The word fell like a ton of bricks on him. It was his worst nightmare playing out in front of him right there in the hospital room. Of the 6,000 questions racing through his mind, he could only utter one. What now? The doctor said, we begin an aggressive treatment plan that has been very successful in cases like hers. You are really very fortunate, said the doctor. The father's anger came boiling over in a tense response of, how so? And the doctor said, we've caught this very early. And since we did, what would have been deadly can surely be helped. You are very lucky that your little girl broke her leg. Otherwise, you might not have known until it was too late. Has anybody ever found themselves in a similar situation? Maybe it's with a car, lower scale here. You take your car in for an oil change and they tell you that the timing chain's bad. Or you start working on your roof to patch a hole and you find out that the trusses are rotten. The bad news uncovers more bad news and that turns out to be good news because if you hadn't found out, it would be worse news. Yeah, that. We find ourselves in this type of situation today in Romans. And our initial round of bad news is the law. But what's the worst news? Well, let's look and see what we need to see so that we can hopefully catch it in time before it becomes deadly news. Let's dig in. If you would stand with us, we're going to read Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. And we won't get past verse 7 today. Sorry. That's all I could do for you. <clears throat> but we stand in reverence to the God who spoke this word and who had it recorded for our good so that we might know Him. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had, had not said, You shall not covet. This is the way of But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, 
seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Let me pray. God, we just ask for your help. Let me back up. We don't just ask for your help. God, we ask for your help. We ask for the miracle of revelation and illumination as your Holy Spirit teaches and instructs hearts through your Word. And that is a top-shelf miracle, God, for us to comprehend and for us to live out your Word. So we ask for your help humbly, but also expectantly. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would have a seat, that would be good for you. I don't care if you stand up the whole time, but it could be awkward. So, as has been our pattern, let's recap again so we will know where we're at in the progression of things in our study of Romans. And we have come a long way, haven't we? Several months in. I think we started last August, if I remember right. Hopefully, some of you all can recite some of what we're about to look at in our review because we've gone over it a lot and we'll continue to go over it a lot. Well, I've messed myself up. We've been through our outline. Point one was sin, the need for being made right with God. Remember that? Everybody raise your hand. Everybody, everybody put your hand up. Keep them up. Now, who's a sinner? Okay, good. You answered right. We've seen uh, Romans chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, that everybody is a sinner. We were all imputed Adam's sin when he sinned. And we talked about that a lot, whether that was fair or not. But we know that it was fair because God set up a system of imputation. We'll talk about that in a second. So that was point one, sin, the need for being made right with God. And what was point two, anybody? The only way to be made right with God? Just, just, justification. Justification by faith. There's only one way to be made right with God, and that is by justification, by faith. And that was so much of the book of Romans that we've looked at to this point. There's only one way to be made right with God, the only one way for your sins to be dealt with, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. No other way. And that carried us through the end of chapter 5 of Romans. That was the second point. And that brings us to point 3 of our outline, which is blessings, the results of being made right with God, which is really good news for everybody in here. And we're going to be in that through Romans 8. And again, I've, I've told these guys this morning, I'm still just so amazed at the flow of thought, the logic, the airtight case that's being made through the book of Romans. So that's that's our outline. We talked about Asian Station. Anybody remember Asian Station? We've talked about it many, many times, haven't we? Imputation. We were imputed God's we were imputed Adam's sin. Expiation, God taking the guilt of our sin away from ourselves. Propitiation, God put the guilt of our sin on Christ, punished Him for it. Imputation again, which is God giving us Christ's righteousness, 
which leads us to a state of justification, which means we can stand in God's presence justly. And then we start on the process of sanctification, which is progressively becoming more and more like Jesus. And I would say again, sanctification is not the process of you earning your salvation. It's the process of becoming more and more like Jesus after you are justified. And then finally, we, we will reach the state one day of final salvation. We were saved before the foundation of the world. We have been saved. We are being saved. And one day we will be saved. So that's salvation. So that's Asian station. And all of this is based on our union with Christ. We were crucified with Him. We will be raised with Him so that we might walk in newness of life in Him now. Crucified, buried, resurrected with Christ so that we might walk in newness of life now. So that brings us to where we are today. And I want to be a little bit more specific about where we've been over the last few weeks before we jump into Romans 7, 1 through 6. Before we jump into 7 through 13. We've been in 7, 1 through 6 for three weeks. And in those three messages we saw that Paul... Stay with me. In response to his questions in chapter 6, verse 1, which was, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then chapter 6, verse 15, are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? In response to those questions, he wrote chapter 6 and what we've seen in chapter 7 so far, and he explained why we had to die to the law. Dying to the law did not lead us to lawlessness but rather to freedom to serve in the new way of the Spirit. And last week we saw that the Spirit, God's very own Spirit, is the only way we can possibly serve God. God puts His Spirit within us and enables us to serve Him and bear fruit for Him. So dying to the law is a good thing, which would seem to infer that the law is a bad thing. Right? But if you watch any college football, we'll quote Lee Corso and we'll say, Not so fast, my friend. Romans 7, 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means! Exclamation point. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Sorry, let's get that one up there. And this is where we're going to spend our time today in this one verse. So, we died to the law, which was good. That was the last three messages in Romans. But what about the law? What is our perception of the law? What then shall we say? That the law is sin? And I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, I would naturally ask that question. I'd say Paul probably had that question posed to him a few times. If we had to die to the law in the same way that we died to sin, wouldn't that make the law similar at least or the same as sin? Wouldn't the law be sin? Now what's Paul's response to that question? Heaven forbid, by no means... With emphasis, with passion, Paul answers this question just like he did the question of... Now, are you ready for this? Because he's used this phrase several times already in the book of Romans, by no means. 
He answers this question just like he did the question of whether the faithlessness of God... I was afraid that was going to happen today. Glad we got that out of the way. Duct tape. God says, by no means. The same question, He answers it the same way that He answered the question of whether the faithlessness of God's people nullified God's faithfulness, whether God was unrighteous to inflict wrath on us, whether we overthrow the law by means of our faith, whether we should go on sinning so grace could abound, or whether we should sin because we're not under law but under grace. He asked all those questions leading up to this, and His answer was the same as it is for this question. Is the law sin? By no means. And it's a way to literarily scream no. With emphasis at the top of his lungs, he writes, by no means. It's an imperative. It's an absolute no. So is the law sin? No, 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 no. Okay, Paul. Jeez. Forgive us for thinking such a thing, but, Paul, it's you who've been so effusive in your negative take on the law, or so it seems. I want to give you some examples of what I'm talking about. Paul saying things that seem very negative about the law. Romans 3, 20 and 21. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now that kind of makes the law seem negative, right? Would you agree with me there? Righteousness comes apart from the law. Romans 3.28 For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 4.13 and 14 For the promises to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For, it, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Romans 5.20 The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Romans 6.14 For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Gets worse. Romans 7, 4 through 6. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died of that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code, which equals not in the old way of the law. So, I mean, really, Paul? Now imagine being a Jew and hearing Paul speak about the law in these ways. Because if you read Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's called a love song to the law. Every verse refers to the law. Oh, how I love your law. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your law. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. I love your law. It's my meditation day and night. So you're a Jew and you've got this picture of the law, which is I love the law. It gives me life. And Paul's saying, no, life doesn't come from the law. So as a Jew, you're probably picking up stones to stone him because it seems like Paul, especially early on in the book of Romans, is speaking very negatively about the law. 
Would you agree with that? This picture that he paints in Romans to this point, these verses that we just looked at, sounds pretty bad to me. The law can't help you. The law increases sin. You're justified apart from works of the law. You're released from the law. You had to die the law. So now, Paul, in your by no means, why would you bite my head off in order to tell me that the law wasn't a bad thing? The law sounds like pretty bad news to me. But that's just it. It is, in a way, bad news. Like the little girl's broken leg, right? A broken leg is bad news. But it turned us toward knowing worse news. Let me go back to Romans 7, 7. And I want us to look at the end of the verse to see what the law did for us, which makes it not bad news. Is the law then sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. If the dad hadn't taken his daughter in for the broken leg, he wouldn't have known that his daughter had leukemia. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Now do you see it? The law was given, and we said over the last few messages, that the law was given to show us our need for Christ. We saw that in Galatians 3 when it said that the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. But how did it show us our need for Christ? It exposed our sin. And that is the best bad news you could ever receive. Why do I say that? Well, let me ask you a question. What is sin? Notice first of all, that it doesn't say that the law helped us know our sins. That differentiation between sin, singular, and sins, plural, is really pretty big, especially in Romans 7. We'll talk more about that in a second. It does not say that the law helped us know our sins, not our acts, but the inner perpetually dwelling sin nature that is within me. Jesus' death on the cross where He poured out His blood for us covered our sins. You have conquered the grave, taken our sins away. And by the way, that song said sin and I changed the word because it's not sin, it's sins that the blood covered. Our not our sins, but our sin. Not our acts, but the inner perpetually dwelling sin nature that is within me. The fact that Jesus' death on the cross covered our sins is glorious. But let me say this, and I want you to hear this because this is really the crux of this whole message. Sins are not our main problem. They are a symptom of the real disease. We've said multiple times in our time in Romans that I'm not a sinner because I sin. 
but rather I sin because I'm a sinner. I commit sins because I have indwelling sin. And I am belaboring this point on purpose. And in order to walk in newness of life, in order to bear fruit for God, I have to know that I have sin in me. And man, this will play out powerfully throughout the rest of the book of Romans, especially in chapter 7. But for now, the bad news of the law pointed out the worst news of the fact that sin resides in me. How does all this play out? Let's keep digging. Look at the rest of that verse again. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. That makes sense, right? That's simple logic. You shall not covet. Now this is easily explained and embodied when we look at toddlers. Have you ever heard of the toddler's creed? Elisa Morgan, president of MOPS, which is Mothers of Preschoolers, came up with this verse to explain how toddlers see things. Thinking about sin, thinking about coveting. Here's the toddler's creed. If I want it, it's mine. If I give it to you and change my mind later, it's mine. If I can take it away from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it will never belong to anyone else no matter what. If we are building something together, all the pieces are mine. If it looks just like mine, it is mine. Now, we had this vividly portrayed for us yesterday at the dinner table. My man Asa was melting down. I mean melting down. This wasn't one of those uh, Saturday evening post Norman Rockwell pictures picture of a perfect family table. This two-year-old hadn't had a nap and all he could say was, No! No! You need to eat your sandwich. No! I want chocolate! Like you can't have chocolate. But I want it! You need to eat your sandwich. No! I'm like, oh my God. And I said, guys, in preparation for the message tomorrow, this is what sin looks like. Because sin is all about what? What I want. What I think is mine. What I think I deserve. What I think I want. It's mine. It's mine. It's mine. And he didn't know that that's wrong. Now he's learning. Trust me. Don't spank my butt. Don't spank my butt. Don't spank my butt. That's a common conversation in our house too. (laughs) But I do have to spank his butt to teach him that's not yours. It's not okay for you to act like that. I love you and I want you to learn that what you're doing right now at the dinner table is not okay. It's sin. And the essence of sin is selfishness. S-I-N. Selfishness. It's mine. It belongs to me. I want it. Toddlers are the very epitome of human nature. 
We have to be taught what is right and wrong. We have to be taught that there's something inside of us that bends us toward ourselves and as a result bends us to selfishness and a vast array of other sins. And that thing that bends us toward ourselves, that bends us toward selfishness, is sin. And the law points it out to us. Now I think a good question to ask here is, why would Paul, or more accurately, why would the Holy Spirit choose to point out coveting in this passage? How many commandments are there in the Ten Commandments? (laughs) Uh, Pop quiz. Ten. There's ten of them, right? Thou shalt not covet is one of them. Why would he pick that one here? Huh? Any thoughts? We've looked at the Ten Commandments in our last two messages, and there's ten of them. Why pick this one? Why the last one? It is the tenth one, by the way. Why coveting? Why not the Sabbath? I would not have known it was a sin to break the Sabbath if the law had not said, you shall keep the Sabbath holy. Why not stealing? I would not have known that stealing was bad if the law hadn't said, you shouldn't steal. Why not murdering? I wouldn't have known that murdering was wrong if the law hadn't said, you shouldn't murder. Why coveting? Let me tell you why I think. This is just me thinking. The old noodle working up here. I think it's because coveting is internal. It's inside of us. You can covet and no one will ever know it. You murder somebody, somebody's going to know it. You steal something, somebody's going to miss what you stole. You can put a smile on and a mask on and no one will ever know that you're wanting the car that they are driving or the home that they're hosting you in. They'll never know that you want the spouse that they have their arm around. So as an inner sin, one on the inside, it best matches up to the concept of sin as something that dwells in me. My main problem is not the object that I steal. It's the deep, dark desire that makes me want to take something that isn't mine. That's the problem. Jesus would say it this way. As I go back through all of our verses, because I put them in the wrong place, you see. I'll blame it on Asa. He was probably screaming no, or it's mine while I was doing it. And uh, he's not in the room, so... Okay. Jesus would say it this way. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person? For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Where do they come from? Inside. Where do these outward acts have their root? Inside. That's the words of Jesus. Now Jeremiah would give us even more clarity. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? What makes the heart desperately sick? Sin makes the heart desperately sick. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind 
to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, it's bad enough that our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick, but then God has to insert the fact that it's our hearts that He searches and our minds, which is our inner person. In other words, He's looking on the inside so that He can do what? Look at the end of Jeremiah 10. He looks on the inside so that He can do what? to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You see that? He searches the heart and tests the mind so that he can give to every man according to his ways and the fruit of his deeds. It's the inner person that determines our ways. It's the inner person that determines our fruit. It's the inner person that determines our deeds. So, our outer deeds spring from our inner being. And since the law shows us how short we fall, that turns out to be a good thing because it shows that we need redeemed from the inside out. We don't need to fix our outer behavior first. It's not possible anyway. The law shows that our hearts are far, far off the path. And that makes us receptive to the grace of God to do what we cannot do ourselves. And what did we see last week in Jeremiah and Ezekiel? What did God say that He would do in the new covenant? I will give you a new heart. And I will place my Spirit in you so that you might be faithful to keep my commandments. He didn't say, I'm going to give you a new covenant, give you another shot at it, see if you can do better. He said, I'm going to make a new covenant and I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to take the heart of stone out of you, put a heart of flesh in you, and then I'm going to put my spirit within you so that from the inside out, you might appreciate, love, serve, and bless me. The law shows that our hearts are far, far off the path And that makes us receptive to the grace of God to do what we cannot do ourselves, to give us a new heart, a new spirit, so that our deeds might come into line after that. Charles Hodge, theologian, says this, The law, although it cannot secure either the justification or sanctification of men, performs an essential part in the economy of salvation. It enlightens the conscience and secures its verdict against a multitude of evils which we should not otherwise have recognized as sins. The law arouses sin, he goes on to say. It increases its power, making it both in itself and in our consciousness exceedingly sinful. And we'll get into that probably the next time we get into Romans 7. It therefore produces the state of mind which is necessary necessary preparation for the reception of the gospel. Conviction of sin, that is an adequate knowledge of its nature and a sense of its power over us, is an indispensable part of evangelical religion. And he finishes by saying this, Before the gospel can be embraced as a means of deliverance from sin, we must feel we are involved in corruption and misery. Let me tell you where I think we get off course with this in the church, especially in our approach toward the world. 
we look at outer acts of the world and we think, well, that person's not that bad. They, they're a pretty good person. They do some good stuff. They're trying. Please hear me say this as plain as I can say it. There are going to be a lot of good people who suffer in hell eternally. They looked good to us. They were doing good things. They were philanthropists and they were charitable and they were nice people. And their problem is they never knew their sin. They were trying hard to do good. They were trying hard to be nice. And they never knew that they were crooked deep down. So when we approach the world, we look at, thinking about King David in the Old Testament before he was crowned king, he was a little kid. And Saul goes to, by the direction of God, to Jesse's house and he says, I'm going to appoint one of Jesse's sons as king. Jesse's first son walks in, tall, handsome, strong. Samuel says, ah, the Lord's anointed is in front of me. Why? Because he was looking at him from the outside. And God knocked on the door of Samuel's heart. He says, that's not him. He said, what you don't realize, Samuel, is that I, the Lord, look upon the heart, not at the outward appearance of man. God will go to great lengths to get down to the nitty-gritty on the inside. And let me tell you what He finds on the inside of every person. Everybody raise your hand again. How many of you have sin deep down? Yeah, you answered right. It's one thing to say, yeah, I believe I'm a sinner. It is a different thing to say there is sin residing in me. And that's really, really the worst news we could get. It's blood-borne. It's inside of us. And whether we look at somebody and see the outward acts and misjudge them or not, we miss the point that we all have sin residing in us. Before the gospel can be embraced as a means of deliverance from sin, we must feel we are involved in corruption and misery. Now, there's a lot more to cover in these seven verses. But for time's sake, we're going to stop here today and try to get the rest of the passage the next time we're together. But what I want to do is pull out application points so that we might live this truth. Three application points, because that's what good preachers do. First application point. Embrace conviction. Now, I've got to be careful here. Embrace conviction. You ready? I'm going to say something that taken the wrong way could really derail you. So I'm going to explain it. You should feel real good about feeling bad about your sin. But that doesn't mean you wallow in guilt. Conviction draws us near to God. Guilt pushes us away from God. Conviction and guilt are not the same thing. Conviction is the needle that pulls the thread through to mend the garment. It is painful. It does hurt. But we should say, thank you God for wounding me. 
so that you might heal me. Conviction is not guilt. Conviction draws us near to God. Guilt pushes us away from Him. God gives us the gift of conviction through the law, through our consciences, and primarily through the very power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, one of the chief jobs of the Holy Spirit when He came would be to convict men of their sins. And that's a good thing. Does God give bad gifts to people? Does God give bad gifts to His children? No. As for this God, His way is perfect. You're a good, good father. And I'm loved by you. And Hebrews would say that God disciplines those whom He loves. If you're not disciplined, you're not a son. And the way that He disciplines us is through conviction. The Holy Spirit convicts men of their sin and that's a good thing. There may be weeping and there probably should be weeping and remorse. Read the book of James. He says, be miserable and wail and weep. But let that mourning, that weeping, that remorse that comes from that conviction point you to the One, capital O One, who has paid the price for your sins and forgiven you completely for them based on the blood of Jesus. So point one, embrace conviction. If you are a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, and you never feel conviction of sin, I would question whether you're a Christian or not. You should feel conviction of sin because it's a good gift from God. So embrace conviction. Application point one. Application point two is a little bit trickier. Embrace conviction. Second application point. Look to the law for the good that it serves. And that good is the fact that it shows God's perfection and our complete inability to match that perfection, to reach that perfection. And as you look at the law and see that, thank God for the law. We don't look to the law for salvation. We don't trust the law to make us more holy. And last week, Will and I had a conversation after the message. I said last week that the law both failed and succeeded. And he asked me the question, he said, did the law really fail then if it did what it was supposed to do? And my answer to that is, since I've got you here and you're looking at me, my answer to that is, yes, the law did fail for those who looked to it for salvation. Not the law's fault that it failed. The law succeeded in what it set out to do. But for those who look to the law for salvation, yes, it fails miserably. And it's designed to fail miserably for that. What the law is designed to do is to show us the holiness, the unattainable perfection of God Himself. And it beautifully succeeds in doing that. So look to the law for the good that it serves to show us God's perfection and our inability to obtain or attain to that perfection. So when you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you're going, what in the world? Tim Challies came out with this new book called Visual Theology. Anybody seen that advertised? And part of it, he's got the books of the Bible laid out in what looks like the periodic table. So like GE is one. If you're familiar with the periodic table, anybody chemistry? 
Everybody gets excited about chemistry and the periodic table. Anyway, he's got the, <laughs> he's got the books of the Bible laid out and it looks like the periodic table. And then somebody said, well, let me ask you a question. What's the atomic weight of Leviticus? And somebody replied and said, it's heavy. <laughs> so when you're reading through those things, you don't look to it to say, okay, this is what I've got to do to make God happy. It's like, wow, there's no way I could ever make God happy in and of myself. That's the purpose of the law. The law says pretty much everything we try to do in and of ourselves is sinful. So look to the law for that. And rejoice in it. And say, thank you, God, that the law doesn't save me. Embrace conviction. Look to the law for the good it serves. And point three, know your real disease. Listen, everybody deals with indwelling sin. If you're not a believer in Jesus here today, you have indwelling sin. If you are a believer in Jesus and you're here this morning, guess what? You have indwelling sin. You're like, no, whoa, 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 wait a second. You said that God did away with the body of sin. What did we say that meant if you were here for that? All of those sins that I look back in, that I look back to and see, which serve to convict me, which the enemy serves to just toss at me, like the accuser that he is, God did away with that body of evidence. We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. And if you are a believer, you have indwelling sin. Those sins you commit, anybody in here not sinned since they were saved? Nobody raise your hand and answer that question, okay? Those sins you commit are the lesser problem of the bigger problem. For unbelievers, you need to confess that you are a sinner because you have indwelling sin, and you need to receive the new life that only Christ can give. When you confess your sin, your sins will be forgiven because Jesus paid the penalty for them on the cross. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But now listen, if you are a believer, knowing that you still have indwelling sin is just as important. Yes, your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. They're taken away. The body of sin has been taken away. But your sin nature is ever present. And this is something we'll see later in Romans 7. And that's why I just want to lay this foundation. Because when we get to the end of Romans 7, you're going to see it beautifully portrayed how Paul himself was dealing with this very thing. If you would remember, going back many weeks, many weeks, anybody remember this phrase? It's a Latin phrase, simil justus et peccator. I said it in an Italian accent that time. And what that phrase meant was, at the same time, righteous and a sinner. At the same time, just 
and a sinner. And let me explain something to you, Christian. That is the Christian life. You will fight with sin until you die or until Jesus comes back. It's not okay to sin. Shall I go on sinning so that grace can abound? By no means. But real life is this. The temptation to sin will always be there because you have internal sin. And part of what the cross of Christ does is cuts away more and more and more of those sinful desires. Again, we've got a lot to talk about that. We can't do it this morning. It's not okay to sin, but it's real life that the temptation to sin will always be there. And the process of sanctification is your progress in fighting against that sin and instead of choosing that sinful desire, you choose to delight yourself in Jesus instead of that sin that sin tells you you want. That's the process of sanctification. So those three point application points are embrace conviction, look to the law for the good it serves, and three, know your real disease. And your disease, my disease, is sin. Those of you that have been around for a while and know me and my family remember the issue we had with Lily and her shoulder. Lily had a problem. She played violin and she'd get to the point where her shoulder was hurting so bad when she'd play, she'd literally start crying. And she's not much of a whiner. She's, she's a pretty tough nut. And she'd get to the point where she was crying. She's like, my shoulder is hurting so bad. Well, we went to the doctor and see, this is what I love. This, this, this typifies what we're talking about. We went to the doctor and the orthopedic doctor said, there's something there on her shoulder. We don't know what it is. So did he just cut her open and do exploratory surgery? No, he sent her to a specialist in Cincinnati who could deal with her specifically and her specific problem. And when we got there, actually what we dealt with first were oncologists, which are cancer doctors. Our first appointment was with three oncologists for pain in her shoulder. And they said, we're going to run a biopsy, we're going to sample this thing, and we're going to see what it is so that we can deal with it. Praise God the biopsy was not cancerous. It was Langerhans cell histiocytosis. Yeah, LCH we'll call it. And basically what it meant was her healing cells, usually there's a switch that turns them off. The switch didn't turn off and they built up right there and they were right near her nerve, so that was causing her pain. And they went in and they cut her open and they scraped that out and they put in a bone graft and praise God, two and a half years later, she's fine. Her pain pointed to a deeper problem. Just like my buddy whose daughter had leukemia. Your sins point to a deeper problem. It's what the law does. It points out our sin, then it refers us to the one who can deal with that problem. It refers us to Jesus. The law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. So today, unbeliever and believer, 
Run to Jesus for the cure to your real problem, and your real problem is sin. We are all crooked deep down, and we all need a Savior. The law is not that Savior. Jesus is. Let the good law refer you to Him so that He can deal with your sin. And He does it well. He took it to the cross. And the cross cuts it away more and more and more and more and more as we see the day drawn near. Let me pray. God, You are faithful to do what we cannot do. We thank You this morning for the law which points out our sin, the internal disease of sin, and then refers us to the one who can deal with that sin. The law is not sin by no means, but it points out the fact that I have an internal condition that if not dealt with will lead to my death. And we sing, God, You have conquered the grave, taken our sins away, May we know it and believe it this morning. And if there's somebody here this morning that does not know that, God, would you speak to them? Would you convict them of their sin and their sins so that they might receive the healing that they need? And God, I would ask for those of us who do know you, convict us of our sin so that we might receive the grace that we need to live victoriously and powerfully in the face of the world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Then we'll dismiss and have some food. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.